Well, the preacher's job is to proclaim God's truth from God's word to God's people and anybody else who might be listening. That's his mandate. As Paul, the great apostle, neared the end of his life, he wrote to a young preacher and he solemnly charged him to preach the word, preach the word of God. That's it. That's my mandate. Earlier in his ministry, Paul had told the elders of the church at Ephesus, he said, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. God's servant has a a divine commission to speak the full range of God's truth that's found in the Word of God, that's found in Scripture, and not sidestep the hard stuff. One reason here at New Life we usually preach through a couple of books of the Bible each year is that it forces us to grapple with the whole counsel of God and not just the topics that we like or that we feel comfortable talking about. And such is the case with today's sermon, because in our study of the book of Romans, we find ourselves in the latter part of chapter 1, which contains some hard stuff. And if I just said, hey, this stuff is too controversial, so we're just going to skip this section, we're going to bypass it and go on to the next section, we'd miss out if I did that on a critical aspect of the whole counsel of God, and that would be to our detriment. And so we're, we're going to go for it, okay? We're going to dive in, we're going to go for it, we're going to trust God to apply it to each of our hearts as He sees fit. And I want you to know there's definitely some PG-13 content here, and so I wanted to give you a heads up about that. And uh, if you have young children with you, you might want to take that to heart and act appropriately, okay? So let me ask God for some guidance here. So, Father, now I thank you for the word of God, and I I pray through your spirit that you would enable me and strengthen me to say the things that you want said and refrain from saying the things that you don't want said. And I yield to your will in Jesus' name. Amen. Question. What happens to a nation or a society or a people when that nation or society or people decisively reject God. When they abandon God, what happens? Answer, God responds by abandoning them. Follow-up question, when God does turn away from a society that rejects Him, what happens to it? Answer, Romans 1, 18 through 32. And that's where we find ourselves in our series. If you haven't taken your study guide out from your worship folder yet, go ahead and do that. This is a brand new section of Romans. It extends for several chapters. It could be titled, The Bad News for All of Mankind, that explains why everyone needs the good news of Jesus. I want to read for you Romans 1, 18 through 32. So listen, please. For the wrath of God, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress or hold down the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. 
For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness and evil and covetousness and malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. That's interesting. Disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Now, I'm fairly sure that hearing that elicited some sort of reaction in you. Maybe you cringed a little bit. Maybe you shifted in your seat out of some discomfort. Some of you now wish you hadn't come to church today. Others of you wish you'd picked another week to invite your friend to come to church with you. For many of you, I'll bet where your mind went was to our nation, to our country, and, and the situation that we find ourselves in these days, and how much has changed over the past 40, 50, 60 years. You cannot read Romans 1, 18 through 32, and not have some kind of reaction. Now, as I said a few weeks ago, we're going to be challenged in Romans to let God be God. And so let's do that. Let's all step back and take a deep breath and let God, through his chosen apostle, tell us the truth about humanity and about one of his own, God's own, least appreciated attributes, namely his wrath. Because that's the subject of this section. Did you notice that? The wrath of God. Today we're going to explore four truths about the righteous wrath of a righteous God. And we need to understand this. We need to get it. We're going to see the revealing of God's wrath, the reasons for the wrath of God, the results of God's wrath, and then the remedy or the removal 
of his wrath. So first, the revealing of the wrath of God. Verse 18 again said, For the wrath of God is revealed, literally is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Sometimes non-Christian people ask us Christians, why are you guys always talking about getting saved? Why are you always talking about being saved? Saved from what? I mean, I'm good with God, and, and God's good with me. So, so what do I need to be saved from? And there are several Bible answers to that good question, and the simple answer is sin. Jesus came, it says, to save his people from what? Their sins. Digging deeper, we see in Scripture that Christians are saved from three aspects of sin. Sin's penalty, sin's power, and sin's presence. We say it this way, as a Christian, I have been saved from the penalty of sin in that moment that I trusted Christ in the past. We say, I am being saved, present tense, from the power of sin as I walk in the power of the Holy Spirit and in submission to Christ. And one day in the future, I will be saved from the very presence of sin when Jesus returns to take me home and transforms my very being. So we could call it salvation in three acts, past, present, and future. When we talk about Christians being saved from the penalty of sin, what exactly are we talking about? We're talking about being saved or rescued or delivered from ever having to experience the ultimate punishment for our sins, namely the wrath of God. Saved from the wrath of God. And I can hear someone say, but I thought that God was a God of love. And he is. But listen, it is essential for a God who is love to also have the capacity for anger. It's essential for him to have the capacity for wrath. It's a necessary quality in a righteous deity. We know this. We know that if you love someone, then by definition, you hate anything that would come against the object of your love or threaten their well-being, right? I love my wife very much. And therefore, I am angry at anything or anyone who threatens her. A God who just loves and embraces every kind of behavior would be an unloving God, not to mention unholy. He would be a God who makes no moral distinctions. So hurting somebody or helping someone would be the same to him. We know that's not right. No, a God of love must of necessity also be a God of wrath. We should actually be grateful for that. The God who is love is rightly angry at human sin. Because human sin dishonors him, it destroys relationships, it demeans other human beings who were created in his image. So it's his righteous wrath against sin that is what we all ultimately need to be saved from. Why? Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are deserving of God's righteous wrath. So Paul says in chapter 1, verse 18 of Romans that God's wrath is being revealed against sin. 
But this expression of his wrath is in the present tense, not the future. Here he's describing what theologians call God's present passive wrath against sin. I mean, notice, it doesn't say that God sends fire down from heaven to consume everybody. It doesn't say that God opens up the earth and swallows everybody up. This here in Romans 1 is something different. Three times it says God in his wrath gave them over, gave them up, gave them over. It's God letting go. It's God pulling away, pulling back, turning away. It's God removing himself and releasing a society to its own devices. That's God's present passive wrath at work. Now listen, as I said, there is a future wrath, active wrath of God that is coming. And honestly, that ought to strike a healthy fear into the heart of anyone who isn't yet saved. Listen to this from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God, who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. On that day that he comes to be glorified in his holy people and be marveled at among all those who have believed. So there is a terrifying judgment awaiting those who have not trusted in Jesus Christ, who have not believed. Those who refuse to believe and it says obey the gospel. And if you are one in this room or in the room at our Whitehall campus, if you are one who has not yet believed in Christ to the point where you're 100% sure that you're going to be delivered from God's holy wrath, then I'm compelled to offer you the opportunity to make sure that you are saved before you walk out of the room today. So that wrath is coming in the future. Here in Romans 1, Paul is focused on the reality that God is currently, right now, in the process of revealing his wrath against human sin in, let's call it, a less obvious way, but devastating nonetheless. And he wants us to know why. He wants us to know what are the reasons, the causes for this wrath. And that's the second thing we see. Let me read this section again. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. That's the first one, first reason. And unrighteousness, that's the second one, unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's the third reason. Ungodliness, unrighteousness, suppressing the truth. Verse 19. For... What can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, here's the fourth reason, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. 
they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And here's the fifth one. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So why did God abandon humanity? Answer, humanity abandoned God. And that is inexcusable, Paul says. We're without excuse. It's cosmic treason for mankind to deny the God who created them to cut God out of their lives, to cut God out of our culture, to refuse to live under his authority, to ignore God. All of humanity has done this, Paul says. And it is worthy of wrath. And we see more specifically these five reasons. Ungodliness, he says. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Literally, that means lack of reverence for God. Lack of revering God. This is about people's dishonoring attitude towards their creator. Just think of all the movies that have been made that have the word God in the title. Think of those movies. Think of the storylines. Blasphemous. Inexcusable, Paul says. Ungodliness and then unrighteousness. Literally, that means Treating other people unjustly, so not only irreverence for God, but, but lack of love towards other people. This is about people dishonoring other people. Again, we're all accountable in God's sight for our unrighteousness towards each other. And then there's this suppression of the truth. We can call it a blindness, a willful blindness to the truth about God. Truth that has been plainly revealed to everybody through creation. We'll talk more about that. And then there's this ungratefulness. Humanity's consistent failure to acknowledge that all good things in their lives come from God. From the breath in their lungs, to their heart beating, to their brain waves functioning, to food, to work, everything comes from the Creator. And yet humanity routinely Ignores that, forgets that, looks past that, gives credit elsewhere. Height of ungratefulness and then idolatry. Idolatry, humanity's dishonoring of God by replacing Him, trading Him, worshiping, it says, His creation instead of Him. Totally inexcusable, Paul says. Listen, this is our heritage as human beings, is it not? This is the story of all of mankind, beginning with our very first ancestors back in the Garden of Eden, and then repeated again and again and again and again down through history right up to this present day. It says every single person on the planet is without excuse. Now, just last week, I was meeting with a guy, and he asked me about this. He asked me about people who live in remote places, places that have no Bibles, no Christian churches, or Christians. Or he said people who are brought up in other contexts, other religious contexts, like being brought up in an Islamic country, for example. He said, are they without excuse as well? And my answer, yes, according to Paul. Why? Because the one true God has left his fingerprints everywhere. 
everywhere in creation. And all of humanity is responsible to seek out their creator. Everybody is accountable for accepting the light that they've been given. What we have here in Romans 1 is the basis for what is sometimes called, big word, the cosmological argument for the existence of God. More recent version is referred to as the intelligent design theory. You're familiar with this, right? This argument contends that some things about God should be understood by anyone who just looks out the window or looks up at the night sky. It should be plain to every single person on the planet, Paul says, that a creator exists, that that creator has personality, because we have personality, that the creator is distinct from his creation, that he's very powerful, and that as created beings, we are all accountable to the creator. And this is all true because God, as I said, has left Evidence of his presence everywhere. He's left his fingerprints on everything from the intricate design of the human body to the wonder of photosynthesis to the beauty of a flower to the mystery of the stars and the planets in the heavens. Everything we see in nature shouts at us that it was made, designed by somebody. We understand this. I mean, no rational being in their right mind looks at an iPhone, for example, or a tablet, and says, well, what do you know? Look what time and chance produced. Nobody says that. We say, Steve Jobs was a pretty smart dude to be able to conceive of something like this and then produce it. We all know inherently that design requires a designer, and Paul says, no one thinking clearly can look around at the design and the complexity that we find in the natural world and say, oh my, look what time and chance has produced. Amazing. That's ludicrous. Design requires a designer. We all know this. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, that he's God, his godhood, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And yet, supposedly smart people will say, don't be ridiculous. There's no creator. There was no first cause of all the effects that we see in this universe. An intelligent creator is not needed to explain things. That's all outdated religious nonsense. We've moved past that. We're more progressive than that. There are other explanations for the origin of the universe. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. Now, there it is. There it is. There's the real problem. The root cause of all of this suppressing of the truth, holding it down, what is it? Idolatry. The human race, not wanting to be told that we're all accountable to a higher power, 
Imagining ourselves to be so wise, so advanced, so sophisticated, ended up doing what? Trading God in. Exchanged him, it says. Trading God in. We traded in the one true God for what? Gods of our own making. We did this so we could have more manageable gods. More tame gods that we like better. Verse 25 says, Humans exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Note that. Paul is telling us that all human beings worship. All human beings are incurable worshipers. Did you know that? The question is not, will you worship? The question is, what will you worship? It's hardwired into us. We all worship and serve, he says, something. You can't avoid it. Everybody looks to something or someone for happiness and meaning and satisfaction. Everybody who's ever lived has had an ache in their heart to feel validated, approved, significant. And they look to something to fill that void. Every human heart is on a quest to find life, real life, true? And messages are coming at us every day, thousands of them from every direction saying, look, life is found here. Oh, check this out over here. This is where you'll really find life. If you just have this amazing experience or buy that item or look like this or achieve that goal, then you'll really be living. And you'll be the envy of all your friends. And you find that happiness that you long for. Everybody worships something. And if it's not the one true God, then it's what? It's an idol. A false God. A substitute, functional savior. In our culture, 21st century, somebody's idol is probably not the carved wooden statue that they bow down to. It's more likely a, a person or a thing or a status or a, a dream that they've given themselves to, that their heart has come to believe will fill up their em emptiness and bring them the life they've always wanted. By the way, if you've never read Tim Keller's great book, Counterfeit Gods, that's the title, Counterfeit Gods, you ought to read it. It's the best book I've read showing how our human hearts are actually idol factories. Proficient at manufacturing all kinds of false gods. You know, Paul speaks here about exchanging God for images, and I hear that and I can't help but think about the images on our screens that people are addicted to. I have to ask, does the thought of giving up your device for a week, giving up your device for a week cause you to break into a cold sweat? We're addicted to our idols. He says we serve them. They enslave us. That's what idols do. So what do we need to be saved from? From our own idolatry and from God's righteous anger against idolatry. The truth is this. The one true God is highly offended and should be when those he created choose other gods over him because they believe the lie that he just isn't really enough for them. 
He doesn't have what it takes. That what they really need is to be found elsewhere and not in him. He's offended by that. And when a nation collectively says, we don't want you, God. We want gods of our own making. We want gods that we can control and that don't require anything of us. We believe those gods are going to satisfy us. When a nation says that, then it's as if God says, okay then, if that's what you want, then I'll back off. I'll pull away. I will remove my restraining grace from you. And in my wrath, I'm going to hand you over to your own desires, your own inclinations. If you want your sin so badly, if you love your sin so much, then you can have it. I'll give you what you want. And so when a nation abandons God, abandons God, these are the results. This progressive abandoning of humanity by God in which God actually gives people what they want, the removal of his restraining grace. Some people say, well, yay, now we can do whatever we want. This is actually devastating for a culture. Because when God pulls away, all manner of sin rushes in to fill the vacuum. It's like there had been some some moral curbing in place for a society that kind of kept people in check. But now with God pulling back, the curbs are gone. It's wide open. It's anything goes. Nothing is off limits. Even the most grievous sin is now celebrated in the streets. One man said this, when God's restraining grace is lifted, all hell breaks loose. It's true. By the way, restraining grace was a term coined by Jonathan Edwards in the 1700s to describe the culture he saw. Think about that. Paul says this is what's happened with humanity. Humans went into a moral tailspin, descending into ever darker places, and he's pretty graphic in describing it. He talks about dishonoring their bodies with each other. What's he talking about? A sexual revolution... God pulls away, God pulls back, God says, you can have what you want. A sexual revolution ensues unavoidably, inevitably. Those old Victorian repressive sexual mores are now cast aside in favor of a more modern and progressive morality, and people start doing things with each other that at one time was thought to be immoral, but now, normal. This new climate created in the absence of God's restraining grace. Everybody's doing it. In fact, you're considered kind of weird, out of step, if you're not. From God's perspective, it's as if he says, okay, you want to worship sexual pleasure instead of me? Then I'll give you over to that. I'll give you what your darkened hearts desire. Have at it. See where it takes you. People celebrate the freedom to do degrading things with each other. One man said, when God abandons a culture, it inevitably becomes pornographic, sexualized. We don't have to look too far, do we? And listen, the sexual activity that begins to run rampant in that culture is not just heterosexual. When the restraints are gone and the moral curbing is dissolved, rampant, Homosexual activity always follows. He talks about this, doesn't he? 
He says, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Well, what do you mean, Paul? What are dishonorable passions? For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, literally against nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Another sign that a society has been given over by God is that homosexual activity becomes accepted as normal, even though Paul says it's contrary to nature. Now, I know this scripture raises all kinds of questions in our day, and I know for some of you, this isn't hypothetical, this hits close to home. I know that. I need you to understand that Paul has a particular purpose in writing here, and it's a pretty narrow purpose, okay? He sticks pretty close to it. He's building a case that all of humanity is under God's wrath and is in desperate need of God's good news. That's his purpose. It's not in Paul's view here to reinforce the truths that we might want to hear in this moment, like that God has love for every person regardless of their sin area or sin problem, which is true. But that's not Paul's purpose here. His declaring of good news for all people is going to come later near the end of chapter 3. He's not concerned here with expressing compassion and understanding for everybody's individual personal situation or acknowledging all the factors that lead some people to same-sex attraction. All of that is outside of his purview here. We need to let God be God and we need to let Paul be Paul. He's writing what he's writing. He has a purpose for writing. But neither is he saying that homosexual behavior is at the top of the list of worst sins. If there is a number one sin in the Bible, it's probably pride. Paul's purpose in this section is simply to point out that the mainstream acceptance of the homosexual lifestyle is one evidence of God's judgment on a nation. His purpose is pretty narrow here. But I'm a pastor, and knowing that this would raise tons of questions in people's minds, people whom I love, and knowing that tackling all of those questions is really outside the scope of what I can do in a single sermon, I have something to offer you. Monday evening, here at our Gehanna campus, our own Dr. Jay Firebaugh, You know him? He's going to lead a discussion on this very topic, okay? At our Gehanna campus, it'll be more like a forum or a workshop. There'll be interaction as opposed to like a full-blown seminar. I need to tell you it won't answer every question because that would take a week. But a biblical perspective, I can tell you, is going to be presented that will be more comprehensive than what I'm able to do here in this sermon. And so I think many of you would benefit from attending this workshop Monday evening, 6.45, room 206, 206 and 207, here at the Gehanna campus. The space is limited, so you need to register online at enewlife.com so we know that we have enough seats, okay? Bring your Bible or your Bible on a device, and um, I know that you'll benefit from that.
So when a culture is careening down the path away from God, let's just say it this way, there are consequences. God pulls back and sin rushes in. And the next thing we see in the final uh, part of this section is that basically the floodgates are opened up and all manner of sinful behavior is flowing into the streets and into homes and businesses and government and entertainment and all of that, all sectors of society. What is seen as the widespread practice and celebration of all kinds of sin. Verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, since they rejected God, God gave them up to a debased mind or a degraded mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval, one translation says, hearty approval to those who practice them. So in the absence of God, wouldn't you agree that sin's takeover of a culture is pretty comprehensive? We've seen the degrading of bodies, the darkening of the heart, the inflaming of passions, the distorting of sexual appetites, and now the mind is affected. And Paul says God gives them over to a debased or a corrupted or degraded mind. And that's a mind that's no longer able to make any sound moral judgments anymore. The moral compass is skewed. Right and wrong as strong moral categories are no longer in force. It's simply whatever feels good to somebody in the moment, right? Just go for it and to heck with the consequences. And what becomes the highest virtue in a culture like that? I'll tell you what, tolerance. Tolerance. Anything goes. All manner of sinful, selfish expression, in fact, is not just tolerated, but flaunted and even celebrated. So this is a list of sins, isn't it? A list of vices. And there's several of these kinds of lists found in Scripture. But this one is quite interesting to me. My best take is that Paul knows where he's going next. And where he's going next is which is to show that, that not only godless, irreligious Gentiles are under the wrath of God, but also proud religious Jews are also under the wrath of God. And I think Paul is anticipating that Jewish people who are reading this letter would at this point be thinking what? Yeah, those dirty Gentiles. They're the epitome of evil and everything that's wrong with this world. All their sexual deviancy and such, they deserve God's wrath. And so knowing the self-righteous pride that filled their hearts, Paul sets the stage for addressing them by sprinkling into this list. Did you see it? He sprinkles into this sin list some sins that I think would have messed with them, would have blown up their categories a little bit. <coughs> Excuse me. It's as if he was saying, 
Yes, when God abandons a people, he gives them over to unbridled lust and all manner of sexual deviancy. And if they don't repent of that, then the floodgates of sin will really open and the smelly, raw sewage of gossip will flow into the streets. And boasting even, and if you can even imagine it, the heinous sin of dishonoring your parents will proliferate across the land. That's just my take, but I I think Paul aims to make the point here to Jews that in God's sight, sin is sin. And proud boasting and feeling superior to other people in pride is as wrath-worthy as fornicating. It's all sin. And all sin deserves God's judgment. And feeling superior to other people because your particular sins are less visible or less sexual is the height of self-righteousness and self-deception. And God hates it. So Paul clearly laid out, hasn't he? The revealing of the wrath of God on all of humanity, the reasons for it, and in explicit detail he has showed the results of God's wrath And so this is the bad news for all of humanity, and it's all very sobering, and it's the end of the chapter. But I cannot leave it there. I can't. So I'm going to cycle back to verses 16 and 17 and remind all of us that this bad news, this universal condemnation of humanity is not the final word. Amen? Thankfully, there is a remedy, there is a way out. God has provided for the removing of His own wrath. Listen again to these life-giving words from earlier in chapter 1, where He said, I am eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek or the Gentile. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And I will say again that there is actually good news for people who are under the wrath of God. There's good news for those who've rebelled against God, for people who have pushed God out of their lives, for those who've chosen to chase after other false gods. There's good news for idolaters like me, amen? And like you, there's good news for any and all who will forsake the lie that there is no God, who will forsake the deception that we all got here by chance who will forsake the monstrous substitution of the creature in the place of the Creator. There's good news for those who will admit that it was arrogant and foolish to believe such things. And I believe for our nation, for our country, if enough people turn away from idolatry, turn away from idolatry, and embrace the truth of the one true God, who knows whether God might have mercy on us. Many, many are hoping and praying for just that. There is good news. And it comes from the same God who has wrath against sin. Because that God, the God of the Bible, 
the creator of all things, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, made a way for guilty, corrupt, impure sinners like me to be saved from his own wrath. Amen. It's a way to have your heart changed. It's a way to have your sinful record totally expunged before him. It's a way to be declared righteous in his sight, not having your own righteousness, but having gifted righteousness from him. This salvation from sin and wrath can happen for you today if it hasn't. Because somebody came to this earth from heaven and bore the brunt of God's wrath for you and for me. The wrath you deserve because of your many sins. This one had no sin of his own, but he took the wrathful punishment that you and I deserved as he stood there and hung on that tree. He's bruised and crushed, and his blood was shed in that moment when God laid all of your sins on him and punished him in your place. I'm telling you, that's love. Don't tell me he's not a God of love. Don't tell me that. He is. He made a way. Didn't have to, but he did. And then Jesus, God's perfect son, rose from the dead so that one day in 2018, he would be alive in heaven and able to hear your prayer calling upon him to save you from your sins and deliver you from future wrath. See, Jesus alone is the wrath remover. And once you transfer the full weight of your trust from yourself to Jesus, instead of yourself, God commits to saving you from future judgment, and he reckons your sins already judged in the bloodied body of his own crucified son. Now that's the good news. That's good news for all of humanity, and that can be good, you, good news for you today. For you today, especially if you're not yet 100% completely sure that you are saved. But I stand here and I tell you, salvation is from God. Salvation is of the Lord, the Bible says. It is by faith. Faith alone, none of us could ever be good enough to merit it, to earn it. It had to be a gift from God, and it is. As it says in our memory verse for this week, Romans 6, 23, say it with me if you know it. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So if you're here today and you sense God drawing you to Christ, calling you to make sure of where you stand with God, like certain, like 100% sure by believing the good news and expressing your faith in words, then I urge you to pray this prayer along with me right now. It's on the back of your outline. I, pre I presented this a couple weeks ago. I'm presenting it again, and we'll present it many times during our study of the book of Romans. Because no one should go through Romans and not have a crystal clear opportunity to be saved, and to know where you stand with God. So if you're not sure, 
Even if you are sure, you might want to pray this prayer with me, okay? So we come before God now. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of hearing your good news proclaimed. I humbly admit to you, this is what you want to say. If you're not sure, you can just agree with me to say, yes, yes, Lord. I humbly admit to you that I know I'm a sinner. Yes, Lord. And have fallen far short of what you require. In my life, I've broken your holy law many times. I hate my sins and I turn away from them now. I long to be free of them and forgiven by you. I've heard your good news about Jesus. And in this moment, I'm choosing to receive your love for me by believing that Jesus Christ is your son and that he died on the cross in my place in order to save me from my sin and from your holy wrath. And I also believe that he rose again to life and is with you even now in heaven. Because of what Jesus has done for me, I call upon you now to save me from my sins. Just tell him that. I call upon you now to save me from my sins. I transfer my full trust and allegiance to my new master, Jesus Christ, and him alone. Just say, yes, Lord, that's me. For his sake, please have mercy on me. Forgive me of all my sins. Give me eternal life and your Holy Spirit, for these come only from you. And please give me your strength to follow Jesus as Lord of my life from this moment on, because I now declare that Jesus is my Lord. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.